Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 18, starting from verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It will be better now for you to give support, to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. The army marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I've just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Job said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor-bearers surrounded Absalom, shook him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Jehovah told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. 
The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Job was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died to serve you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Thank you very much indeed, Dan, for that reading. Good morning, everybody. My name is Danny. If uh, we haven't met, and uh, can I say, if you are um, planning on coming to Newish, then we're expecting you. We're looking forward to having you for lunch. And um, what it would be good if you, if you could meet me um, in the courtyard outside at 12.30. We said 1 o'clock on the invitation, but because of prayer tea, uh, we'll make it a little bit earlier. So 12.30, meet me in the courtyard. We live just a couple of minutes away, and we'll walk up together for Newish. Well, why don't we uh, pray again and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us in Old and New Testament. We thank you that you've spoken to us in the book of 2 Samuel to enable us to grasp the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him clearly, to cling to him and his cross. And we ask now for your help as we turn to this uh, rather strange and surprising part of the story. Uh, we're conscious that in the shortness of life, this might be the only time in our lives that we study this particular part of your word, inspired by your spirit. And we ask that you might, in your sovereign care, do us good today, that we might learn,
and understand and persevere in the Christian life and cling to the Lord Jesus in this dark world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you don't have to have lived uh, for long in this world to find yourself longing for justice. Do you feel that? Look around the world, watch the news, uh, live a little, love people. And I want to suggest that unless you are morally blind, hard-hearted, or devoid of compassion, and I can't see anybody here who looks like they would qualify for that, you will find yourself within yourself a strong desire for justice, won't you? For wrongs to be put right, for evil to be punished, for every act of cruelty and oppression and harm to be brought to account. Not only for the headline-grabbing atrocities, you know, the human trafficking, the things we see in the news, you know, those terrible stories of neglect in maternity units, murders on the streets, acts of terror, the wave after wave of sexual abuse that has mired so many institutions, not just those, but scratched under the surface of normal human society. Peer into the office, the factory, the meeting, the playground, be a fly on the wall of an unhappy marriage, lift the lid on any human community, and you'll soon find that where there are sinful human beings, there is blood and tears, broken hearts, Abuse, cruelty, neglect, injustices that need putting right, and very little of it gets put right in this world. Now, I want to suggest that this longing for justice, for, for wrong to be put right, is a normal part of human experience. Uh, just talk to a parent or grandparent as they're bringing little ones up in the world, and when they get hurt or treated unfairly, the desire for justice is very strong. But this normal part of human experience is given voice loudly in the Bible. Listen to this, uh, David speaking, for example, of his persecutors in Psalm 5, a psalm that we're going to study later on in the year. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. Or listen to David again in Psalm 69. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. There are many other Psalms crying out for justice. But listen to this from John's vision in Revelation 6. He says, The souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. In other words, persecuted Christians were there he sees in heaven, calling out in a loud voice, listen to what they say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So, if you live in this world and you have concern for its brokenness, if you care, then you will be someone who longs for justice to be done for evil to be overthrown, for God's righteous rule to come uncontested, or as God himself says in Amos 5, for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But of course, as soon as we think that way, we have a serious problem. 
As soon as we want justice to come on the world, we realize that we are part of the problem. And that our own sin, our own unrighteousness, also demands to be put right. If I'm honest, I may not make it into the papers for my evil acts, but the Bible insists that I will give an account for my life before God as well. I cannot pretend that I can stand before the God for whom I'm calling to bring justice to the world with no case to answer of my own. I'm part of the problem. And so we come to an irreconcilable tension. I want justice for the people's sins. But when it comes to my own sin, it's not justice I want. It's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And I want to suggest that this is the irreconcilable contradiction at the heart of the human race, the impossible tension between love and justice. And this is the tension that we're going to see at the heart of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, as we come to 2 Samuel 18 this morning. We're going to see these mutually contradictory claims between justice and love manifest themselves in the conflict between David and his rebellious son, Absalom. We're going to see these tensions raised but not resolved. We're going to feel the pain of them. And so we're going to look for their resolution in Christ, in whom alone love and justice meet. Well, you'll find uh, an outline on the sheet. We're going to look at it in three sections. Uh, Firstly, the battle prepared, love of David, one to five. At the end of chapter 17, we left the two sides preparing for the final decisive conflict. And at the face of things, uh, things look very unequal, don't they? Absalom, whose armies were referred to in 1824 as all the men of Israel, is encamped somewhere east of the Jordan, ready for a swift and brutal attack on David and his men. And David, meanwhile, is near this city of Mahanaim. He's been sustained by the generous provision of the locals, 28 to 29, but he is at a severe disadvantage. He is outcast, outgunned, outnumbered, and exhausted. I used that line last week, and someone said that was straight out of the musical Hamilton, which I've never seen or never heard, so isn't that amazing? Outcast, outgunned, outnumbered, and exhausted. That's David. In the light of this, it's important to note what the narrator chooses to focus his attention on. Here is this enormous, decisive battle about to happen. There's a brief deployment of the troops in verses 1 and 2. But after that, the narrator concerns himself with two more personal matters, both of which come out in the dialogue between David and his troops. The first matter is David's own role in the battle. Verse 2, the king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, but you must not go out. If we are to force to flee, they don't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The men know that the kingdom depends on the king. The king is too valuable to risk. And so this is a strategic decision for the sake of the kingdom. But there's a little more we're meant to see here, I think. The king staying behind in the city actually provides a little snapshot of what is happening in the wider story. Look at verse 4. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. 
wonder if you can remember that this whole story of Absalom's rebellion began with Absalom sitting by the gate in Jerusalem, back in chapter 15, claiming to offer justice to the various causes that people brought before the king but were denied. So this was how Absalom undermined his father's kingship and stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so now as we head towards the end of the story, we see David sitting by a gate as all the men march out to bring justice on Absalom. And this is a hint that God is throwing Absalom's rebellion into reverse. But there's a complication for that quest for justice, and that is the second focus of the narrator in this section. As they leave the city to win back the kingdom, David gives one single piece of advice to his commanders. Now, if you're in David's shoes, I wonder what you would say. You're staying in the city, you're sending everybody out. This is the moment. This is the moment that you are going to win the kingdom back. This is the moment that justice is going to come. What would you say, seasoned warrior, military strategist that you are? Look at verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. We know who they, they are now, thanks to Becky's songs. David's three commanders. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. This is a surprise. It's a surprise because we have seen over the last few weeks how much David has suffered at the hands of Absalom. We've seen him suffer at the enemy's taunts. We've seen him respond by plotting and planning with Hushai and the spies to defeat Absalom, to gain the upper hand. And we've seen him now send out his troops. And the narrator has not left us with a shred of sympathy for Absalom. There's no doubt that this rebellion should be crushed, that the opposition should be smashed so the kingdom can be restored. But in verse 5, it's not so much the commander of the armies we hear speak, it's the father we hear speak. Be gentle with the young man, literally the lad, Absalom, for my sake. We haven't seen him in that light, have we? We haven't seen him as a lad, as a young man. We've seen him as an enemy of God's people. And it's not difficult to imagine the despairing sighs and glances that must have passed between David's three com commanders at this point. You can imagine them rolling their eyes to each other. Here they are being sent off to crush the rebellion of this ruthless, remorseless man in his quest for power over his father. This killer, this rapist, this murderer. And as he sends them out to fight, David, who once said to Job, don't worry about the sword, it devours one as well as another, gives them this extraordinary command, be gentle with the lad Absalom, be gentle with the murderous traitor. It's a huge conundrum for these men. A complication, a spanner in the works. For a start, there is the very practical question of how. How do you crush a rebellion without crushing the rebel? How in the heat of the battle with several thousand troops do you isolate one man? Well, he's distinctive by his great hairdo, isn't he? But, but apart from that, how do you isolate him and keep him safe? And what if he doesn't come quietly? What if 
You keep him alive, but he stirs up trouble at a later date. What happens, I think Joab will be thinking, when David dies of old age and he becomes the legitimate heir to the kingdom, which he is? I have no doubt these are the questions racing through the mind of those commanders. But even more problematic for them than the practical, the strategic question is the moral question, why? Why treat Absalom with such leniency? Why this sentimental weakness, they must have wondered? Was it because David was conscious that his sin had started the whole trouble off? Or was it because Absalom, after all, was a young man, a lad, and knew no better? Or was it a sense of David's guilt and failure as a parent? Well, we can speculate, but in the end, we must take the text at face value. Look at what it says. David is not asking for leniency because Absalom deserves it. But he says, for my sake, do this for me. This is a son who, for reasons we can only imagine, the father still loved. Yes, his sin demanded justice, but love demands something else. And so these two forces now come together in this tremendous moment of contradiction in the one man, the king and the father, the needs of the state, the yearnings of the parent, Love and justice. And there we have the problem that we're going to rattle through this narrative right to the end. An insoluble conflict at the heart of the kingdom. And it will be beyond any of them to resolve it. Beyond Joab, beyond David. Well, what we see now, however, is who heard this. Verse 5, all the troops... Notice that for later. All the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. And that sets us up for the second part of the story in 6 to 18. The narrator has so far devoted a huge amount of space to the lead up to this battle. Most of chapters 15, 16 and 17 have shown us in great detail the planning and strategizing, the hopes and the risks of each side. And we know that the kingdom of David is now at stake And yet, what do you notice about the report? Verses 6 to 8, just three short verses. And then we get three times as much space devoted to the end of Absalom himself. And the reason for this is because the narrator is not simply recording history for the sake of history. He is recording theology, theologically significant events. And we always have to pay attention to the, the space the narrator gives so we know what his concerns are. And what he's stressing in this section is how divine justice now catches up with Absalom. Verse 6, the army marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men. The casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. I don't know what picture comes into your mind when you read that the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. If, like me, you suspect this is where Tolkien drew his inspiration for Fangorn Forest in The Lord of the Rings, then the picture you have in your mind is of malevolent trees walking around crushing Absalom's men like orts. That's a great picture, isn't it? 
Most commentators, more sensibly, <laughs> see that this is about David's army forcing the army of Absalom into dangerous terrain, in which people would become lost, get entangled in tree roots, fall into pits in the darkness, or even, as we'll see in a moment, become so ensnared in the thick vegetation of the forest that more were killed as a result of the terrain, perhaps a handful eaten by wild beasts. This is not a National Trust property. <laughs> this is a wild, dark forest. There is a little more than that, though, I think. Not magical ends so much. But just notice that Absalom's army is referred to as Israel, whereas David's army are simply David's men. It is the nation of Israel that has risen against God's king, and it is the nation of Israel that God is now defeating. We are told in verse 8 that the battle spread throughout the whole land or earth. This theologically weighty word is translated countryside here. It's the same word we noted back in 1523 where we saw the whole land was weeping. And so the narrator has been treating the land as a, as a kind of a character in its own right, reflecting the spiritual state of the people and their relationship with God who gave them the land. It's the land that was God's covenant gift to his people, this good land of milk and honey, a land that is not supposed to turn around and kill you, a land that is supposed to be your friend, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now the land itself, nature itself, the whole groaning creation is rising up against God's enemy, crying out for justice. And so I think this takes us deeply into a strand of the Bible that is, that is really significant, that, it, that the deep longing of the world for justice to be done. Psalm 98, let the sea resound and everything in it. The world who, and all who live in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why is the creation singing? Because he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And in Isaiah 55, on that day, the mountain and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Here is a little hint that even the created order is longing for justice, longing for God to sort out the world ruined by human beings. But of course, you can't have that justice in an abstract way. Justice has to come to real people, to the real perpetrators. And so the narrative now zooms in on this one man one of those men who were devoured by the forest, whose day has finally come. And Absalom's end is described in very great detail in three scenes. Clearly, the narrator sees this as a significant moment. This is what these chapters have been working up to. Let's look at the first scene, verse 9. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of an oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept going. Several details draw out the significance of what is happening. 
First, the entrapment of Absalom by this great oak tree and his meeting David's men happened by chance, notice. Humanly speaking, it was an accident. No one planned it. While no human planned it or could possibly have dreamt it up, we know from 1714 that God has determined to destroy Absalom. So this is no accident. This is divine justice. No question about it. Secondly, being caught in the tree by his head is a particularly fitting kind of justice for the man who prided himself, you'll remember, on his great head of hair. This symbol of his pride and his virility, his masculinity, his narcissism, now become the very means of his downfall. Be careful, you with big hairdos, as you walk in the woods. He is utterly helpless, helpless in the hands of God which, of course, he always was, but now he knows it. And it's given this incredible symbolic expression, divine justice. And third, the mule. We may think of mules as lowly animals, but in these days they were the royal animal, symbol of prestige, symbol of kingship, and the mule carries on without him, symbolically underlining his loss of kingship. And finally, do you notice that detail of hanging in midair? Literally, in the Hebrew, hanging between heaven and earth. And this is obviously where he is physically, but clearly the narrator means us to see the symbolism of this. The sudden reversal of fortunes. He who could think he could capture the kingdom of God and rise up against God's king is now suspended between heaven and earth, between man's realm and God's realm, between the justice he deserves and the love and mercy his father wishes to show him. It's a moment, a moment of potent symbolism where all the tension of the story comes together. Which force will win, justice or love? Well, this brings us to the second scene, verse 10. When one of the men saw this, he told Job, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Absalom's fortunate, unfortunate predicament is witnessed by one of David's men who promptly reports it to Joab, and Joab goes ballistic, verse 11. Joab said to the man who told him this, what? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him down? Right then, I would have given you a reward. For Joab, the matter is clear-cut and simple. He is a clear-thinking military man. He knows that Absalom is the enemy. He can think of any number of reasons that Absalom deserves to die. You may want to remember them. He murdered his brother Amnon. He has undermined the kingdom. He has deceived the nation of Israel. He's undermined justice. He's plotted to murder his father. He has raped his father's concubines. You may even recall the time when Absalom set fire to Joab's own cornfields because Joab wasn't returning his calls. The list of crimes and abomination goes on. Absalom is a bad man. Joab is a clear-thinking politician as well. David's kingdom will never be safe unless he is destroyed. And so he knows what David said. He heard him clear enough. But David doesn't know what's good for him. This is not the time for sentimental nonsense. Well, the other man who finds him isn't so sure. Verse 12, the man replied, Even if the thousand shekels were wet into my hands, I would not lift my hands against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. This is a daring thing to say to Joab. 
He reminds Joab of what everybody in the story, including the readers, know, that David has commanded them to deal gently with Absalom. Well, in the third scene, Joab loses patience and takes matters into his own hand. Joab said, I'm not going to wait for this like you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. And that is the end of Absalom. Joab does what Joab does best. He acts. He deals out justice. He disobeys David, but he does it with the best of intentions. This is how the kingdom must be established. If David had got his way, then the kingdom would be at risk. And David's love would have trumped justice. But Joab has got his way. And so justice has come to Absalom. And the narrator now leaves this scene with two starkly contrasting memorials to Absalom. Verse 16, then Joab sounded the trumpet, the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. Then they took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. But verse 18, a little flashback during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pill and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, where he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. Two contrasting memorials. The second memorial that he set up to himself in his desire to be remembered as a great hero, but it's the first memorial that is the more fitting one, isn't it? The unmarked grave of the rebel. Here is a reminder, another reminder, of how things must end for those who take their stand against God's anointed. Well, Joab is a killer. For him, this was the easy bit. Getting the news to David is going to be a little bit more tricky. So we come to the third section. The news dispatch, love and justice, did not meet. Now, as Dan was reading it, you may have found yourself thinking, this is a little bit strange. If you're a Bible study leader, a good question to ask your group would be something like, why is this here? What does it add to the story? Why are we giving so much detail about the young man Ahimaz, who so desperately wants to run and give the news to David in verse 19? Why is Joab so against it, verse 20? So he sends this unnamed Cushite, who happens to be nearby instead, verse 21, but then gives in to Ahimaz's dogged insistence, 22 to 23. What is all that about? And then in verses 24 to 32, why do we get this detailed blow-by-blow, second-by-second account of David watching from the city and seeing those two men coming up, running with the news from the battle? Why do we then witness this great anticlimax as Ahimaz, after all the fuss he made, bottles it at the last minute and just gives David a kind of a fudged account of the battle, verse 29, to leave it to the Cushite after all who Joab wanted to break the news to him in the first place. What is going on? After all, remember that the battle which involved the deaths of 20,000 Israelites took just three verses to tell. Remember that the biblical narrator is never wasteful of words, never wasteful of paper. Why spend 13 verses on the report of a single death that we already know about? And most problematic of all, 
Why does the story end the way it ends? With David absolutely lost in grief for his evil, murderous son, who everybody, narrator, God, us, the readers, everybody wanted dead. Why? Well, I think the answer is that the narrator wants us to ponder long and deep the conflict he raised at the beginning between love and justice. He doesn't want us to resolve it so easily because it cannot be easily resolved. See, as I keep reminding us through this series, that this spirit-inspired narrator is not just a historian. He's a theologian. He's a teacher. He isn't just kind of narrating eyewitness events. I mean, the, the events all happened. It's true. He's a historian in that sense. But he's a theologian. He's a teacher. He's, he's taught this narrative. He's put this narrative together and it, in the most ingenious way possible so that we will understand the complexity of this problem so that we won't take shortcuts and find easy answers. And... He wants us not just to understand it intellectually, he wants us to get it at an emotional level as well. He wants us to feel the weight of the problem. And I think he does this by three storytelling techniques. Number one, you notice there's a kind of weird twistiness to this story. The whole episode is full of ironies and disappointments. Nothing happens as anybody plans. David makes a solemn request in verse 5, which is crassly ignored and disobeyed by his most loyal general. Absalom, after all his gathering of power, gets his head stuck in a tree, of all things. No one could have made that up. It's the most humiliating reversal it is possible to imagine. And this monument he sets up to commemorate his fame is actually eclipsed by this unmarked little can of stones at nobody's grave. Joab's plan for the Cushite to reach David first is frustrated when Ahimaaz somehow manages to find a quicker route. But then Ahimaaz, who makes this great thing about telling David the full story, doesn't actually tell him or doesn't know. The long-awaited news of victory and vindication that the whole of David's men have been waiting for brings grief and sorrow instead of joy and relief. Everything in the story misses the mark. Nothing goes right, does it? And this underlines the fact that the tension we are grappling with between justice and love is never going to go away in any human kingdom. The world of human sin is too messy it is too broken. It can't be resolved by easy theological arguments. The very messiness of the narrative makes this plain. This is a big problem. That's the first thing. The second method he uses is to slow the action down. You notice how he plays it out frame by frame. It was almost painful to read it, wasn't it? So we see this conundrum about the taking of the news through the eyes of Job. Then we see it through David's eyes as we wait, as he waits for the messengers. We wait with David. If this were a film, there would be slow motion cuts, wouldn't there, of the 
messenger's feet running through the dust, a close-up of David peering down the road, maybe a raised eyebrow as he sees someone coming. It's very, very slow, very detailed, very careful writing. And he's doing this to build the tension, to help us to feel it, to help us to ask the question, how is this going to be resolved? And then the third thing he does is he forces us to think about two key words. The first of these key words is the word news. You notice that, verse 19. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Job told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. The word used here is actually a verb, a single word, to take or carry news. It's the Old Testament version of a common New Testament word, to preach the gospel. The word we translate evangelize. And it's interesting that a quarter of all Old Testament occurrences of this word are in this passage. It's about taking the gospel, announcing momentous news. Not necessarily good news. It's good news or bad news depending on the context and the person receiving it. Ahimaaz believes that it is good news. Job is not so sure. And when we cut to David watching from the gate, we watch him desperate for good news. Do you notice that? The king said if he's alone, he must have good news. The man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running. He called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said he must be bringing good news. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He surely comes with good news. See how much David is longing for what we know is impossible. And it raises the tension to another level. Can this be done? Is it possible to find in this world a meeting of love and justice? Well, having raised the tension to such a high degree, we now watch as David is about to be bitterly disappointed. And now we come to the second word. Verse 28, Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. Now here's the key word. When Ahimaaz calls out in verse 28, all his well, he literally uses the single Hebrew word shalom, peace, fullness, harmony. You may just remember that shalom was the last word David had spoken to Absalom in 15.9. You may also recall that Absalom's name means father of peace, Ab-shalom. So David's concern is about the shalom of Absalom. Verse 29, is the young man Absalom safe? Literally, is it shalom with Absalom? Ahimaaz gives this surprisingly vague answer. So when the Cushite arrives, he asks the same question. Verse 32, the king asks the Cushite, is there shalom with Absalom? And now the news at last comes to David. The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And now David knows the truth. The rebellion has been crushed. The Lord has done what he said he would do. Justice has been done. Shalom has come to Israel. But not if you listen to David. 
And the account ends with one of the most emotionally raw moments in the whole Bible. Look at verse 33. Here is David's reaction to the news. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, many readers over the years have been baffled by this extremely emotional reaction to Absalom's death. After all, it's the death that's been fully expected. It's what the whole narrative has been driving towards. It's a death that is fully deserved, justly. Let's not forget that Absalom had knowingly committed acts that God judges to be profoundly evil. He's a murderer, a rapist, a deceiver, a usurper, a traitor. Paul's description of sinful humanity in Romans 1 seems to describe Absalom, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, a gossip, a slanderer, a God-hater, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying his parents, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Let's not forget that Absalom's death was also necessary if God's kingdom was to be secured under David. This is more than Joab's instinct. This is God's word in Psalm 2, as we saw last week. For God's kingdom to come, all opposition must be crushed. All who take their stand against God's king must be dashed to pieces like pottery. And therefore, many modern readers criticize David for weakness and sentimentality at this point. One modern commentator accuses David of holding, I quote, a great pity party. Another of uncontrolled blubbering. Another of childish folly and wallowing in grief. And certainly those sentiments will come out in Joab in the next passage. But what are we to make of David's outburst? What do you think? Is it weakness? Or is it something else? Is this David at his worst or David at his best? Are these the words of a broken, sentimental old man, an indulgent father full of regret and guilt? Or are they the kingly words of someone who knows the depth of his own sin and has learned the value of the grace of God? Well, how do we resolve this? It's always tempting to speculate, isn't it, and try and work out what is in someone's mind in the biblical text. But as is almost always the case, the narrator studiously avoids passing judgment. But I think there are two things we can say for sure. In the context of what we've seen, two things we can say as we conclude. Firstly, I think David's words teach us a godly grief for the injustices of God's world. A godly grief for the injustices we see in God's world. There is almost nowhere like this anywhere else in the Bible where a king gives vent to deep, unrestrained personal grief. We can't dismiss it as sentimental nonsense because it's the climax of the story. We've seen David is 
capable of profound grief when those close to him die. When Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, he wrote a song. When the child Bathsheba bore to him was sick, he fasted and prayed and lay on the ground. But this seems to be at another level. There's no eloquence here. There's no poetry. Just the raw, wretched pain of a father as he repeats three times, my son, for the name, and, and my son five times, one short word in the Hebrew. As he speaks his name, Absalom, father of peace, combined with my son. All the regrets and disappointments, all the guilt, all the pain, the betrayal are acknowledged at last. All the if-onlys, the anger and the anguish of what might have been but now will never be. And that is the point. It is grief without comfort. David stands naked and alone. Yes, he is a failed father. And he can't put it right. David's kingdom is safe, but it's a sad kingdom because at the heart of it is the irreconcilable contradiction between love and justice. And this is the point for us. That only someone who cares can respond this way about the injustices of the world. See, good is real, evil is real. And those who believe in God will care. If you want to avoid this, you have to become an atheist. Listen, for example, to Richard Dawkins. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replications, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect of it. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, just blind, pitiless indifference. So if you want to be somebody who isn't hurt by the world, you have to become an atheist. But if you believe in God, if you believe in good and evil, and this world is going to be a painful place in which to live, because these things matter. God cares. Do you remember the first murder recorded in Genesis 4? The blood of Abel, crying out to God from the ground. And God has cared about every single lost life, every single taken life ever since. And so God cries out, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so if you find yourself just a little bit sad and upset by the state of the world... If you watch the news and feel depressed, if you grieve over loved ones who reject God's Christ, if you find yourself longing for things to be put right, then be encouraged because this is how you should feel if you believe in God. Only the atheist can treat the brokenness of the world with indifference. If you believe in God, you will grieve for the state of the world. Not to despair, 
not to fall into cynicism, but you will find a godly dissatisfaction with how things are, a longing for true shalom, and you'll find yourself praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the first lesson for us. I think that David's grief teaches us a godly grief for the injustices of the world. Some things cannot be fixed. But secondly, it teaches us where to place our hope. At the heart of this story and at the heart of David's kingdom is a tension that cannot be resolved by David or any other man. The tension between love and justice. See, David in his Grief and his longing. He is a sinner, as Absalom is a sinner. Justice demands the death of the son, no matter how much David longs for something else. And that reminds us, as I said at the beginning, that however much we long for justice, we are part of the problem too. We too are those who have raised our hands against God. We are his enemies who deserve to die as much as Absalom. A little later in the book of Romans, Paul puts it like this. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Yes, we think. Absalom has got what he deserves. But then Paul says, but do you, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Now we should see Absalom's unmarked grave as the very future that we deserve because we too have lifted our hands against God and we have a case to answer and in our sin we have as much reason to dread the justice of God as we have to long for it what we deserve is not the monument of praise but the unmarked pile of stones because we too are part of the problem. And therefore, I wonder if you notice in the midst of David's anguish, a little hint of how this will one day be resolved. Look at verse 33. He says, if only I had died instead of you. There's no suggestion David is conscious of the significance of these words. As is so often the case in the spirit-inspired Bible, people speak better than they know. But here is the one great truth in this passage that anticipates the solution to come. Because when David's son Jesus comes into the world, the innocent will die instead of the guilty. Jesus himself puts it in that exact term, the ransom, it will come instead of many. A righteous person instead of the unrighteous. The judge instead of the ones who deserve judgment. He who's done wrong. He who's done no wrong. Takes the justice of God for those who deserved it. And this is the way Peter in Acts 10 puts this astonishing piece of good news. Here's the news that is worth running for. He says he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as living judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. 
that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness for their sins. Or listen to Romans 3. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the gospel, where love and justice do finally meet. So let's give thanks for this good news and believe it. Let's pray that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we admit that each of us, in the way we have lived, in the evil we have done, in thought and word and deed, and the good things that we have failed to do are part of the problem of our world, part of why the creation itself longs for justice to come. Please forgive us. Thank you that in Jesus alone such forgiveness is possible. As he dies the death we deserve to clothe us with his own righteousness, we see at last both justice and love come together to bring us into your kingdom and to bring the final shalom to the broken world. And so we ask that you'd help us as we grieve for this broken world to hold on all the more to Christ and to look for his coming. In his name we pray. Amen.